This is the MSG podcast. Okay, we had to start ba, with that, ba, I guess. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> welcome, best. welcome to the MSG podcast. Um, that's Masters of Social Gastronomy. I'm Sarah. I write for Pemsflower.com and I talk history. And I'm Soma, and I run the Brooklyn Brainery, and I talk science mostly. 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 Science and oddities. I feel like that's your strange things. Your strong suit. Yeah. And we decided to do this podcast on something that Soma and I have been getting really riled up about recently, and that is raw, raw milk. Raw milk. I, I didn't realize we were doing that. <laughs> I have to say this this podcast might be a little bit one sided because to be let's be upfront, neither you or I really support the raw milk movement. Because with history, ev- everyone dies from it. Everyone dies. And with science. Everyone dies. Everyone dies. From so it. there's really not there's not a, not an upside. <laughs> but let's let's talk more about that. Okay, about do, what? Do you want to do history? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about history. So here's the deal. 1860s New York. More and more people are moving into the city. Up until this point, a lot of people lived in rural areas, and there weren't any there weren't any laws passed about what should or should not go in your food. That kind of legislation didn't exist because for the most part, your milk, for example, came from your cow. You were responsible for producing and consuming your own product or came from the farm down the way. So when people move into Manhattan, however, you don't have a cow. No one had cows in Manhattan. Milk was coming from Westchester County, which we know is to the north of Manhattan. And since no one was legislating this food product, um, when it entered Manhattan, 90,000 quarts a day came into the city. Well, at the point of sale, 120,000 quarts were being sold. So level number one is that people watered this milk down because there was too much demand and not enough supply, essentially. So they wanted to stretch it. What's worse than that is that it's before we understood germ theory. We didn't know that germs made you sick. Cows can get bovine tuberculosis, and bovine tuberculosis is communicable to humans. So sick cows can come from anywhere. I mean, cows, even in the cleanest, beautiful pasture farms, still sit in their own poop. I don't know. Have you ever milked a cow out of curiosity? No, but one of my roommates, I was talking to her about yeah. this because I brought up raw milk, and she was like, oh, man, whenever I go to Poland, my relatives have a dairy farm, and I, I milk the cow, and she was very excited about raw milk. And I was like, oh, did you ever just like stick your mouth under the udder and just like bam right in there? And she's like, no, because their udders are, are covered in poop. Caked so, in poop. Yeah. Caked in poop. You have to, you, you know, you clean them and you coat them in iodine to hopefully disinfect. But like, you, you know, after that point, if you're drinking raw milk, you're just straining it. So you're going straight from something that's covered in poop to your mouth. And actually, there are historic recipes where you make drinks by milking the cow directly like into your punch bowl or something, which is kind of amazing. And, you know, I'm tempted to try. But so that's number one. So disease can go into milk, whether it's from uh, bacteria on the outside of the cow, from their feces, or whether they're sick with tuberculosis. And so this tubercular milk was coming into the city. To the third like trifecta of this misery of milk in 19th century New York was to increased supply, dairy farms were founded in Brooklyn, like urban Brooklyn. The cows were fed a byproduct of distilleries and a combination of this grain-based diet and close, dirty living conditions. The cows got really sick all the time. So the cows, um, you can find pictures of them if you Google it. They have open sores on their hides, their teeth are falling out, their udders are covered in ulcers, and their tails would rot and fall off their bodies. They were also always drunk. 
because they were eating cast-offs from the, the breweries. The breweries, yeah, the beer breweries that were in Brooklyn. So they're, they're sick. They're sickly cows, sickly drunk cows, and their milk comes out watery and blue. So to sell this milk, people, people judge quality by how it looked because we didn't understand anything else. So all you had to do is mix some flour or some chalk or some plaster in that milk, and you've got a product. And again, there's no legislation against these kinds of things. So what is the result? Well, a lot of mothers didn't breastfeed in this era, and that's a whole other story. And the infant mortality rates in downtown New York hit 25%. So one in every four children died before they reached one year old. You know what changed that? We started pasteurizing milk. In the 1880s, we developed germ theory, and we realized that the milk that was being sold in poorer neighborhoods was just rife with bacteria and disease. And um, Nathan Strauss, who bought Macy's, he was a longtime kind of owner, entrepreneur owner of Macy's, was also a great philanthropist. He set up what were known as free milk clinics. He would offer pasteurized milk at cost in poor neighborhoods so that mothers had access to a higher quality product that they could afford. So after we start pasteurizing, and then in 1906, we developed the Pure Food and Drug Act, which is um, the predecessor to the FDA. You know, it, it said that you couldn't adulterate food and you had to print ingredients for the first time. I feel like every time we have a talk, everything every hinges. On 1906? On, yeah, it, every, everything it hinges after that point. After that point. Huge. Huge it's all changes. different. All different. It's all, it is all different. By the 1880s, private dairies pasteurized, good, you know, selling top quality products. And that's when the milk clinics were going up. And it wasn't required by law until 1912. You know what happens after 1912? Wait, what happened in 1906? 1906 is the Pure Food and Drug Act. So that basically prevents adulteration, it prevents false advertising, you have to list ingredients. And then specifically in regards to, and that, you know, you can't put chalk in milk. Oh, okay. 1912 says you have to pasteurize by law. A lot of dairies were already doing it, but now that bans the sale of raw milk. Okay, so what happens after we ban the sale of raw milk? Babies stop dying. That's terrible. <laughs> By the 1930s, so you know, two decades later even, um, talking about the Lower East Side, which had the highest infant mortality rate in the country in 1860, by 1940, it had the lowest. So when I hear about people consuming raw milk today, I get scared because there is this history of, of death from raw milk. So here's what I want to throw to you, and then we can talk about the debate surrounding it a little okay. bit. To me, it seems like the raw milk idea has more to do with actually a good quality product than raw milk. You see what I'm saying? Yes. As in all things, there's a very large spectrum. Um, and some people, some people are just like, yeah, it tastes great. It's better. Like you can taste the grass. Everything is amazing. But then other people are like, oh, raw milk, it'll, it's, miracle it'll, it's a miracle, it'll cure cancer. It's cancer cure. Cancer cure. Right. Yeah, it doesn't cure cancer. That's. <laughs> have you had cancer? That's about it. Do you know? I mean, I have been drinking raw milk, and that is what has protected me from getting cancer. There you go, that's proof. Only half of that's true. I also drink beer, and I don't have cancer. So beer must also stop cancer. It's amazing. <sighs> So amazing. It's wonderful. You know, I've heard the, the taste debate before. The pasteurized milk tastes cooked, like that you can taste the grass. I guess my two arguments are, I just read an article about Momofuku Milk Bar, who mm. now I pass when I come out of the subway to come to the brainery. Um, and they were kind of lamenting the death of a farm that they really loved and they used milk from. And they said they love
loved the milk so much because you could taste the grass, you could taste the thistles, you could taste what the cows ate. It was the best tasting milk they'd ever had. But you know what? Momofuku Milk Bar is not serving raw milk. So that milk is pasteurized, but still retains the flavor of the field. But I've also heard that argument historically. Um, early vegans didn't drink milk specifically because they said it had tuberculosis and it killed, it killed people. But then by, so that was like 1890 when that manifesto came out. By 1905, 1906, raw foodists are like, drink raw milk because um, pasteurized milk tastes burnt. One thing is actually, uh, there was a taste test done by Serious Eats with a bunch of different milks. Mm. And uh, one of the side effects of ultra high temperature pasteurization is A, things taste a little bit burnt, and B, um, the, the lactose in the milk gets broken down. Mm. So it, it turns into two different sugars instead of one. And then it actually ends up being sweeter as a result of that. Mm. But people actually were into the sort of like caramel flavor that came from the ultra high temperature really? pasteurization. Yeah, like the, the uh, Organic Valley won the taste test hmm. like by a margin mm -hmm. across all kinds of, like I don't think they did a raw milk. Um, but they did a lot of like the smaller, like more local yeah. kinds of New York milks. And Organic Valley like blew them all out of the water. Do you know the kind of differences? So two kinds of pasteurization, really three, but really two. Um, <laughs> there is uh, high temperature short time pasteurization, which is 161 degrees for 15 seconds. And it kills, you know, 99.999% of the evil bacteria Stuff. yeah uh, and then ultra high temperature is 275 degrees oh, okay for one second so that is able to kill all the bad guys um, pretty quickly and it also has a much longer shelf life than okay. the traditionally pasteurized stuff it's like box milk that kind of stuff yeah, yeah okay yeah. and I mean some for example organic Valley does sell both uh, UHT and traditional pasteurized milk. You just have to look on the box to see. The other kind of factor that people have said is that it's really rich and creamy and um, is almost yellow sometimes, the milk. The yellow thing is bullshit. Tell because me. the only reason why it's yellow is because they're grass-fed cows. Like and beta, beta carotene from the grass gets in the milk and turns it yellow. yellow. But all the other cows, like you could have a cow that's totally grain fed and yeah. have raw milk from it, but guess what? Grain doesn't have beta carotene in it, so it's not gonna be yellow. And it's absolutely simply a consequence of um, what you are feeding the cow. That's why you can only get like small batch, like that beautiful, the, there's butter that shows up on grocery store shelves that's only spring to fall when the cows are grass fed. Right, and right. commercial butter has dye in it to get the same effect. And also the creaminess comes from the fat content and also from not being homogenized too. One cool thing about homogenization is if you have, well A, that taste test once again, um, unhomogenized milk didn't actually do that well because mm -hmm. even once you shook it up and you started to drink it, you would have some like globs of fat and then like some thinner parts and people really wanted an even texture. Mm. And so the homogenized milk um, one of the things that it does is because it distributes the fat more evenly, you get a creamier mouthfeel in general. So for raw milk, when you start to drink it and it tastes creamier, it's because you're just drinking the cream, basically. Mm. 
and then later on you're going to get to the, the parts that aren't as creamy, um, whereas homogenization just evens it out. And people don't know the way that homogenization works is... I was going to ask. Yeah, you basically, you take the milk and you shove it through a sieve and it breaks all of the fat into tiny globs that are just held in suspension. So, and that has nothing to do with pasteurization. No, Homogenization nothing. and pasteurization no. are totally different. No, it's just a fun way to uh, make milk more even, pretty mm -hmm. much. So I think that maybe one of the, the biggest things that raw milk advocates leverage, the idea that people who are lactose intolerant yeah, the lactic acid, like you can drink raw, but you can't drink commercial milk. Yeah, so what raw milk advocates say is, oh, raw milk, it has lactase in it, which means that if you drink this milk, it will have the enzymes in it to break down the lactose. Okay. Because when you're lactose intolerant, the lactose goes through your small intestines, mm -hmm. doesn't get digested. Um, and then the bacteria in your colon feast upon it, and as they're doing that, they release a lot of gas, and then you release a lot of gas, and okay. it's rather uncomfortable for mm -hmm. you. Here's the problem with raw milk and saying that you can take the lactase in it to break down your lactose. There isn't any lactase in raw milk. There's not. There's none. There isn't any in there. They're just not telling you the truth. Um, and some might argue that there are bacteria in the milk that will convert or that will produce lactase on their own in order to break down the lactose. But the thing is, those same like good bacteria, they get there the same route that all the like salmonella and E. coli yeah. and like everything just comes from cow poop. Like if a cow has bacteria in its small intestine that produce lactase and then it poops them out and then that poop gets in the milk, great. You know, you're you, you have also... you have lactase and lactase producing bacteria in there. And food poisoning. But you also have a lot of other stuff that's definitely gonna give you food poisoning. Is, those are the same cultures that we re inject when we make buttermilk and yogurt, isn't it? Yeah, so people who are lactose intolerant can eat things like yogurt because the bacteria, like the probiotic bacteria, break down all of that lactose in order to make lactic acid, which is why yogurt is sour. Well, do you want to look at this New York article? Sure. So in the April 30th New Yorker, there was an article about raw milk. Here's what the FDA says about it. It's quoted here in this New Yorker article. It's, it strongly advises against the consumption of raw milk, maintaining that there is no nutritional advantage and a great health risk. Um, John Sheehan, the agency's director of dairy food safety, has likened it to playing Russian roulette with your health. But then the other side of that argument is people are saying, well, it's my health. Why shouldn't I be allowed to have a choice if I'm going to drink raw milk or not? Raw milk can be divorced from politics, mm -hmm. despite the fact that it ends up being very political. But people have different reasons for supporting it. Mm -hmm. And some of it's like you want to go back to the agrarian past, and some mm -hmm. of it is get the government out of you know my milk jug. Get the government out of my milk jug. Yeah. yeah. And raw milk's not impossible to get. If you want it, you can get it. And a lot of the legislation that's out currently is not even necessarily protecting you, it's protecting the farmers. You know, you sign a, you can get it at farm stands where it's milked. Um, you sign a waiver to get it. Those are all things that are preventing that farmer from getting sued when, you know, possibly, inevitably, there's some sort of serious outbreak. But one thing that's great is times that raw milk is useful. When? Making cheese. 
absolutely was sure. cheese. Delicious cheese. And then you age because, it. Because, yeah, the way, well, the way that it works is <clears throat> one of the compounds, uh, LPL, lipoprotein lipase, I believe, um, that is in milk that is destroyed by pasteurization or like really screwed up by pasteurization, it contributes to like a, like a sharp flavor in a cheese. So mm. cheese makers actually will add in lipase later mm. in order to change the flavor of a cheese. Mm -hmm. So because you age it, like there's a 60 day period, I believe, um, for, for raw here. milk yeah. cheeses. Yeah. And supposedly the acids and the salts and the dryness end up killing the evil bacteria over that period of time. They just made that number up. Really, days. Um, and it's also culturing good bacteria too, I assume, and, and funguses and other things that would compete with this, with anything that might be present in the milk. Well, in an, for brie, for example, usually yeah. over time the acidity of a cheese increases, but it actually decreases, and because it's so moist, mm. um, it's actually a really good breeding ground for listeria, I think. Oh. Um, but. Is it, like how how often is it going to make you die? You know, o only once. Um, <laughs> and that is the heart of the issue. I feel. I don't know if you saw if someone offered you raw milk, would you drink it? Absolutely. Why? Because here's the thing: I have a strong immune system, so even if I got like super sick from it, I wouldn't die. And I could be like, oh, I tasted raw milk; it's fine. Mm. So, for me. Just the ability to say that I did it would, would trump Any of those sense. disasters? Yeah. I mean, I probably would too, right? Because in a way you gotta put, I don't know, you gotta see what it actually tastes like to see if it compares. It could be life-changing. I'm sure it's not even that different. I don't know. We're terrible it's people. We haven't scary. even had it and we're talking about it a lot. I know. I don't, well, I, I would try it. If someone gave it to me, I would try it, but I would be like a little bit, a little bit scared. I don't. Really, I don't want raw milk. It's fair. It's probably a good decision. <laughs> so speaking of MSG, we're taking a break this month, and we're going to be back in June. Do you know the date? Nope, absolutely nope. not. Absolutely not. HelloMSG.tumblr.com. It's always the fourth Tuesday of the month, but we do know the topic. The topic is gelatinous substances, right? Specifically, yes. we're going to talk about Jello. I'm going to talk about Isinglass. What are you gonna talk about? I got about? all kinds of stuff to talk about. It'll be jiggly, it'll be summer appropriate. Wear your fake eggs. Fake, oh my God. Wear your breeziest summer dresses and we're ready to consume some jello. So we'll see you there at public assembly at some date that we don't remember. Absolutely. The, absolutely not. The fourth Tuesday of June for jello. Thank you for listening to our very first um, podcast ever. Bye. Bye.